IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we review the new album by Yola Tango. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I can't believe he beat Beyonce for album of the year, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I can't believe it either. You know, this sort of thing doesn't happen to people like me very often. So, you know, <laughs> I, I'm hoping that the IndieCast listener, you know, if you're a Jewish, uh, if you're a Jewish guy from the East Coast, you know, I hope you see my achievements and think, you know, maybe I can also make it in this crazy music industry you know our, our people have been shut out for too long you know i know what harry styles meant when he said that on uh, in his acceptance speech you know this, this doesn't happen to people like me i think he was talking about working class people from england mm-hmm. uh because we all know that there is uh there's no history of working class people from england going on to become big music stars None. uh there, there, there's no history of that at all um a weird, self-inflicted, uh, or I should say unforced error by Harry Styles. I feel like he has marketed himself, or his people have marketed him so well. And for him to not know how that would play in the room <laughs> is uh, kind of amazing to me. I guess you win the Grammy, you're sort of blown away. You you yourself can't believe that you've beat Beyonce. Uh, I don't know, he just maybe lost himself there for a moment yeah i mean also like let's consider the fact that he spent what 15 straight days uh headlining madison square garden so you know i'll allow the possibility that you might kind of lose a sense of what reality is outside of like a harry style show right yeah i look i've got a little monologue on this so if if you can bear with me here because for those who have not been paying attention this week, there was controversy, as there always is, after the Grammys, where um, Harry Styles won for Album of the Year for his album Harry's House, and uh, Beyonce didn't win for her record Renaissance. And we I, we go through this thing every year, like where the person that the internet wants to win doesn't win this award. You know, whether it's Beyonce, who this has happened to a a couple of times, uh, Kendrick Lamar, Frank Ocean, and people go temporarily insane and they they mistakenly believe that the Grammys are a paragon of, like, rewarding quality in music, (laughs) you know, as if, like, they've just now suddenly gone against that, whereas, you know, they do this every year. Um, Yeah. You know, the Grammys are obviously stupid. You know, we're not taking the Grammy seriously by talking about it. Although it should be noted that they're not irrelevant. You know, I see people say, like, well, it doesn't matter who wins a Grammy or who's nominated for a Grammy. And that's not really true. I mean, for instance, if you're a Turnstile fan, the fact that they were nominated for a Grammy, that's good for Turnstile. You know, it doesn't mean that they're a great band because they were nominated, but it means that they're probably going to get played on the radio more. Probably means that their next album will have more promotional support from the label. You know, it, like, yeah. Well, what what I think it means for Turnstile is like this is just like the first step. Like in 2035 when they're just like basically at a level of I don't know, like Metallica or Ghost or just like putting out these whack ass records. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but that's when they're going to win a Grammy. Yeah, they'll start cleaning up at that point. Um I have to say too that you know, we're used to Stan armies overreacting over nothing when things like this happen. But I have to say that Beyonce not winning the award for Album of the Year is strange. And strange might be too nice of a word for it. Um, There's only been three black women that have ever won Album of the Year, like in 60-some years at the Grammys. And you think that the kind of people that typically win that award, you know, they're people who are usually very successful, the Taylor Swifts, the Adele's of the world. Beyonce is certainly in that company. Uh, and then you factor in all the other things about, you know, 
having pop culture impact, having critical acclaim. She checks all the boxes. She is the most awarded artist in Grammy history. Um, and look, I'm not saying she's an underdog, as she has been described. Like, the New York Times had a tweet saying that oh, she's an underdog heading into the Grammy. She's not an underdog. But it is hard to look at that and not conclude that there's some sort of weird bias against black women in that category. I, I don't know how mm. you can't conclu- conclude that when there's so few black women that have won that award. And yet black women are some of the most prominent musicians of like the last several who, decades. It's just very who, strange. Who, 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 who won them? I think Lauren Hill won. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you're putting me on the spot. I don't. Rem- I, I don't know all. I think Warren Hill might be like the last one. Yeah. Uh, last Did the Bodyguard one. soundtrack win or that? I think uh, that might have won. I don't know. I saw a stat this week that only like three black women in history. I mean, but, gotcha. I don't think Aretha Franklin won an award, or Tina Turner might have won an award at some point for that, hmm. uh, like private dancer era. Um, but of course, it's not Harry Styles' fault that this happened. Like he didn't decide that he was going to win this award. Uh, over Beyonce. Um, but I do think this is maybe the worst thing that could have happened to him. You know, yeah. I, and I'm going to contradict myself here a little bit where I said earlier that winning a Grammy or being nominated for a Grammy is relevant. It can help you. I, I think it's more helpful for a band like Turnstile that's up and coming, whereas an artist like Harry Styles, he's already on top of the music industry. I don't know how much more help he needs. I think in terms of his image in the press i the sense you got this week is that there that the honeymoon period with him is over uh mm. you saw the knives come out against harry styles <laughs> in a way that I, I haven't seen before now you know i've been critical of him in the past i think he makes boring music i think that he has this ability to it's like a magic trick where he can trick people into thinking that he's not a normie, middle-of-the-road, straight, white, male pop star. Like, people right. somehow project this subversive, gender-norm-challenging queer image onto him, even though he mm. seems to be, to me, a very handsome man who dates actresses and models. You know? <laughs> yeah. Which is what normie, middle-of-the-road straight white male pop stars do. Um, But that ended this week. You know, you saw outlets that were very nice to him in the past all of a sudden talk about how boring his music is. And it just made me think of Justin Timberlake. Do you remember, Mm. like, how in the 2000s? At least least you said Justin Timberlake and not Macklemore. I mean, like, yeah, if you had to choose one of the two routes where, like, things just take a serious turn because you won a Grammy... But yeah, I definitely... Well, it's not just the Grammy with Timberlake. Yeah. I mean, it was... Because in the 2000s, like, he was the first guy, I think, that really benefited from, like, the poptimism takeover of music writing. Like, people really wanted to make a point of liking Justin Timberlake. Because he was a boy Absolutely. band guy, and he it's the kind of person who wasn't critically acclaimed for a long time. And then it turned on him, and... uh it's tempting to say that the Super Bowl thing with Janet Jackson did it, but that oh, was no way. Yeah, but that wasn't true in the moment. But like now, people look back on that as this terrible thing, and he's really become the villain of that. But like, mm-hmm. but like, you read like, like, have you looked at the Pitchfork review of the 2020 experience? That was it. Was really good, right? 8.4, best new music. Yeah, I, I, I was writing for them back then. I, I, I got it confused with uh, the 2006 one. That was really a, that was like a real turning point in the history. But um, Future Sex Love yeah, Sounds, which is like a... That's the one. Talk about album titles that have not aged well. Uh, future Sex <laughs> Love Sounds. But anyway, I mean, it's, I just feel like he's been Timberlake-ized at this point. Like uh-huh. Harry Styles. I, I, I wonder if this is the turning point where... He's villainized a little bit, hmm. you know, because he hasn't had that before. Now it seemed like the turn this week on him. I would say maybe the the operative term here is a little bit because, um, you know, with Justin Timberlake, uh, 
Yeah, I think Justin Timberlake has always been like kind of more of like a straight up entertainer. Like, you know, he is from Mickey Mouse Club. He's always been just kind of like uh, very, very straightforward. And also like, you know, I think uh, acting and all these other things were just like the natural off ramp for Justin Timberlake. I see a future where I I saw a future where Justin Timberlake really doesn't make music anymore. And I don't think that's the case for Harry Styles. I also think that you know, recent times has proven like the resiliency of certain Stan armies. Like, I feel like there's a possibility that we're just completely missing the other side of the equation where there's just this massive amount of people who are super stoked for Harry Styles winning a Grammy album of the year award because, you know, like Harry's house was the exact, like even the people who were praising Harry Styles all along would say, this guy is like genetically engineered to make a Grammy album of the year award, regardless of the competition. And so, um, you know, I think it's, you know, bad for now. Look, I mean, he was kind of had a bad night before he won that award. Like I saw the, as it was performance and like, I mean, dude made Joe Biden look like fucking Mick Jagger two nights from there, man. Like he was just, he, he was like night quilled up out there. I, I just think that, I mean, you're right. There were people that were very happy about him winning that award, but I feel like it was muted because of how he won. Like, he's now... Or just who he won against. Like, exactly. Like, if he had beaten, say, Taylor Swift, right. if he had beaten, say, Adele. Um, but, you know, like, the, 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 the thing that, like, we can expect from the Grammys, aside from, like, you know, the dumbest possible winner of the medal awards, is that... If you beat Beyonce in anything, you got to apologize for that. Well, you don't want to become the figurehead for white guys being rewarded over, like, black women that maybe (laughs) deserve the award more than you. You know, like, if you are the poster boy for that, that's, like, a terrible thing to be. And I think for someone (laughs) like him, who I think has really been a master at playing to what people on the internet like... You know, th- th- this is a violation of that. You know, I, I feel, again, like, this is going to be something that sticks with him. In the same way that we talk about Beck winning over Beyonce in 2015 for that album that no one remembers now. You know, like that singer-songwriter record. And even, <laughs> yeah. like, even like with Beck, like, and I wouldn't make this yeah. argument myself, but you could make the argument that him winning that award was like Al Pacino winning an Oscar for Son of a Woman. You know, it's like, well, we should have given it to him for The Godfather, but this is like a makeup award. You know, mm-hmm. maybe there's people out there who are like, well, Odole should have won a Grammy in 1996. So let's give it to him for one of his sad guy singer-songwriter records. But like Harry Styles yeah. doesn't have that argument. He's not a legacy artist, you know, and... Is he though? I mean, not I think really. like when we talk, I don't think. I mean, when we talk about, um, like, I mean, not, I mean, not compared to Beyonce. I mean, like, okay, well, yeah. I mean, and I don't. I mean, as a solo artist, I mean, are you going to count the One Direction era of him mm. of, of his legacy? <laughs> I, I don't know. I that to me would be a stretch to call him a legacy yeah. artist. Well, I mean, in weirdly and like weirdly enough, I think of like Billie Eilish as like a legacy artist for the Grammys now because like. When you think about, like, deserving to win the award, I think we have to think of it like, okay, like, there's the artistic argument, and then there's deserving to win the award. Like, which album is designed to, like, win a Grammy award and deservedly do so? And I think that, I mean, when you look at, like, even the way these albums were praised in real time, like, Harry's House was, like, this big, uh, you know, centrist pop music moment. It's, you know, there's some Beatles, there's some Rolling Stones, there's some Elton John. Whereas, you know, Renaissance is this, you know, radical uh, political statement about marginalized dance cultures. Like, I mean, yeah, but it's it a way, but it's a pretty accessible record, and she's been oh, and she's been around for a long time, and she hasn't won the award. I, I think it checks every box for a, an album that would have and probably should have won the award I mean, yeah. because it does have. The artistic side, which we always downplay with the Grammys, because it doesn't seem to matter if an album's actually great or not, if it's going to win this <laughs> award. But it is. It has the artistic thing going on. It has the critical thing going on. It has the pop culture aspect going on. Again, mm-hmm. and I keep saying the word strange. That is probably too nice of a word. I just think it's it's odd that an album like that wouldn't 
win that award. I, Because, I, yeah, Harry Styles, it, it is engineered to win that, but not more than the Beyonce record, I don't think. I, yeah. there, there's definitely... I, I, I mean, I think these controversies can be trumped up, but th- in this case, I actually think there's something to it. And uh, yeah. so, I don't know. We'll see what happens with that. We spent a lot of time on the Grammy. We have a lot of banter this week. I feel like our... We do our, have a lot of banter. Our banter is going way over. Uh, I don't even know if we're going to have time for a mailbag. We'll, we'll have to see. We'll see how we're going. But Because um, we have to talk about Steve Albini <laughs> this week. <laughs> yes, we'll, let's move to more comfortable uh, indie rock uh, territory here. Uh, I don't know. Like, I mean, Beyonce won every album of the year for just about every indie rock website. So I think we're firmly within the scope of... Indie rock. That's true. Uh, anyway, Steve Albini in the news this week because he went on Twitter and he posted a thread about how much he hates Steely Dan. And for whatever reason, I feel like every three or four months, someone <laughs> does this thread where they just talk about how much they hate Steely Dan and it always goes viral. Like the last one I remember was that weird art critic from New York Magazine, uh, Jerry Saltz. Is he the coffee guy? Yeah, he's the coffee guy. Okay, like, I I, 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 I know like I know that name, but, like, I definitely know him from some sort of meme. And I'm like, wait, he's the guy who has, like, 18 cups of, like, gas station coffee, right? Yeah, and, and he had another thread once where he talked about how he never cooks, and he took a photo of his stove, and there were, like, books in his stove or something like he i don't know okay he's an odd guy but anyway he had a steely dan uh rant once but now steve albini did it and um i got an i got an, on this action too if i may say i had a i had a viral <laughs> response to him and it's all in good fun i said that you're a 60 year old poker player from the midwest you're more steely dan than punk at this point um because I should say, I, I buried the lead. The the first tweet in his tweet thread where he said, I'm the kind of punk who still yeah. shits on Steely Dan. Which I thought, because you know, people were like, well, why are you surprised that he doesn't like Steely Dan? It's like, I'm not surprised that he doesn't like Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. I just think the framing of, I'm the kind of punk who does this, <laughs> and you're a 60-year-old man. Right. I, I just find that inherently comedic. So that's what I was making fun of in, in my because if you look at him on paper, a sixty year old poker player from the Midwest and you knew nothing else about Steve Albini, would you guess that person likes Steely Dan or not like Steely Dan? I would guess that they like Steely Dan. He's almost like a character in a Steely Dan song at this point. He just has to move to LA and start <laughs> dealing cocaine. You know, then he could be a song on Gaucho. Um yeah. but uh the great thing about this is that it really usurped the Grammy conversation, like because it happened on Monday, and in my feed anyway, it was all like Steely Dan, Steve Albini talk, <laughs> right, right in our wheelhouse. Yeah, I think that we we're we're just kind of dying for content here. I think February tends to be like kind of a kind of a low month anyway, unless it's like Super Bowl week. But I think we just have to like focus on the fact that. Steve Albini said, I'm the kind of punk who, like, unless you're, like, if you're a 60-year-old guy, like, unless you're doing a bit or, like, you're one of those, like, social distortion people, like, covered in (laughs) Sailor Jerry tattoos, like, you should not be saying, I'm the kind of punk who. Like, that should not be the thing you identify with as the most. Um, You know, that, like... I, like I'm just, I thought Steve Albini was kind of above that sort of thing, um, but... the fact that it's like Steely Dan, I, I think we have to just remember the fact that, you know, regardless of like who Steve Albini is as like a, you know, legendary producer, legendary poker player or what have you, um, you know, one thing I found to be true in arguments about bands or artists or what ha- whatever on social media is that mm, I'd estimate like 85 to 90 percent of the time. Uh, when someone is doing that, they're actually sort of talking about people who like that artist as opposed to the artist themselves. Um, it's just kind of a way to launder. Hey, like it's easier to say I I'm the kind of punk who shits on Steely Dan as opposed to I'm the kind of punk who finds Steely Dan fans to be annoying. And like, look, if you listen to Steve Albini's productions with 
uh, you know, like, you know, like bands like Cloud Nothings or the Pixies or PJ Harvey or just his general persona. I mean, he sounds he, he he's the kind of guy who probably heard a lot of Steely Dan albums and hung out with Steely Dan people and thought, I want my music to sound the exact fucking opposite of that. And you know what? You know, good for him on that. But, you know, I think the response to Steve Albini almost justified him in a way because uh, I, I'm like really disappointed at like how I'm going to frame this comparison. But the response to him for the like the earnest response to him, not like yours, you know, just having a joke, but it reminded me of like 2017 resistance Twitter where like people like, you know, Donald Trump would say like, you know, the Chinese are poisoning our hamburger supply. And like, they'll say like, good, sir, that is three Pinocchios or just some shit like that. And then people would be like, well, actually, Steve, you know, they make this very technically proficient, pristine music, but it, it belies the seamy underbelly, which is actually quite punk, sir. And like, I'm sure Steve Albini was reminded of like every single conversation he had about Gaucho in like 1978 that drove him up a fucking wall. Yeah, I I will say that I'm sympathetic to that argument uh, that they are punker than punk bands, but I wouldn't make that to Steve Albini because it's like talking to a wall. Um, how do you feel about Steve Albini as a poster? Because he's been pretty active lately. Yeah. And, you know, he, I, I think he's online friends with the Eve Six guy. And there's something Ugh. similar to how Albini posts, like where he'll either do these sort of sassy pop culture posts, you know, and I feel like he usually tweets about bands that he hates. Like he had a similar tweet thread about the Grateful Dead, like shocks, Steve Albini hates the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and he made all the yeah. same jokes about the Grateful Dead that everyone makes, just like he made all the same jokes about Steely Dan that everyone makes. So he either does that or else he does these like really earnest like political like tweet threads. Like he'll tweet like I feel like he retweets members of the squad a lot. You know, <laughs> yeah. like AOC and people like that. And which is a very sixty year old poker player from the Midwest type thing to do. So yeah. I don't know. It's like we just lost David Crosby. You know, yeah. rest in peace. And I wonder if Steve Albini is now poised to take over the Crosby role where like younger people may not even know his music. They just know him as like a grumpy old guy on, on Twitter. Like, is that going to be Steve Albini's legacy for like zoomers and whoever comes after the zoomers? I think that like David Crosby was like a real one to the end. Whereas Steve Albini is like, I think he's like trying to, if not like rebrand himself, just maybe soften his image as like, you know, the guy who wrote, uh, what was that article about like urge overkill and Liz fair, like three pandering sluts and their music stooge uh, or their music press stooge or whatever. Right. Right. I think he's like trying to like mellow out in like, I mean him and the Eve six guy. And I know that guy's name is Max Collins. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to pretend like I don't know who this dude is, but, um, yeah, I, I I don't know if he's gonna embrace that role. I think there's a part of him that wants to be liked more than uh you know than David Crosby does, and um but I mean I think that the argument with this whole thing to me isn't whether or not like Steely Dan Steely Dan is whack or like you know their music itself. I think it became like a bigger platform to talk about you know whether or not Steve Albini had earned the right to shit on Steely Dan. Like some people were like, oh, he produced the Pixies, so he's earned the right. Or like, well, you know, if I produced Razorblade Suitcase, I'd keep my mouth shut. Like hating on stuff is a God-given right. Like I think that this past week, you know, whether it was like Harry Styles or Moneskin or uh, Steely Dan, it was a real referendum on like, you know, hating on shit being like a fundamental right of being online and you know I, I i don't think that we have to look at like his discogs uh record to see whether or not like steely dan could or whether steve albini can like hate a band he grew up with and you know like the fan base it can be kind of annoying that's like any fan base but you know like Steve, hate on, but like own it. You know what I mean? Like don't walk it back. Yeah, no, it was it was great. Like I said, I I appreciated how he usurped a lot of Grammy conversation this week by 
making fun of Steely Dan. And it does speak to uh, the fandom of Steely Dan, which you would not have expected, you know, 10 years ago, that there would be so many people that would care one way or the other <laughs> that Steve Albini doesn't like uh, Steely Dan. It was a great thing. It was good. He talked shit. I got to talk some shit. Other people talk shit. It, it was a great stress reliever. So I I give it two thumbs up. That whole discourse yeah. was great. Um, <laughs> got to talk to you about something I wrote this week, Ian. I don't know if you saw this, but I wrote a column about Oasis, as I am prone to do from time to time. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> and I feel like it's relevant to our show because, as listeners may remember, we did a predictions episode a few weeks ago. And one of my predictions... And the prediction I was least confident about was that I said that Oasis was going to announce a reunion tour this year that would most likely take place next year for the 30th anniversary of Definitely Maybe. And funnily enough, there's been some things that have happened in the past month that actually make me feel like this prediction might come true. And I I just want to run down this list a little bit and get your take on this. Number one, Noel Gallagher announced... uh, in January, that he's getting a divorce. He announced that he's getting a divorce. So, like a, wow. Yeah, so he's going to need money. So you have that. <laughs> the day after that was announced, Noel went on the radio in England, uh, I think it was BBC Manchester, and he said, never say never regarding an Oasis reunion. And this is relevant because the guy who has said never regarding an Oasis reunion has been Noel Gallagher. So now he's saying never say never, which means that in some way he's negotiating the terms. Mm-hmm. You know, cuz he said like it's 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 going to take an extraordinary set of circumstances, but never say never. So that's the second thing. The third thing, Liam Gallagher the day after that interview ran, tweeted that Noel called him up and this is a quote, begging for forgiveness. Now, <laughs> I don't take that tweet at face value. I think it, he's probably full of shit, but I do like to think that maybe, maybe they did actually like go to a pub and drink some pints and had a moment, and maybe that's going to pay off later on. And then the fourth thing is that their mom, Peggy, just turned 80. And according to the British tabloids, she has wished that they could reconcile, that Liam and Noel can reconcile. She's getting up there in age. You know, who knows how many years she has left. She would like to see them get back together. And how can you refuse your elderly mom who raised you after your father abandoned you? So I don't know. I feel like this could happen. Am I delusional? Or do I have well, reason to be hopeful here? You're leaving out like the you're, – you're like really burying the lead because I feel like the one spark that set this off more than anything was just a – classic Maddie Healy interview where he I, le- I I learned the term marting yes I mean apparently this I thought this was like a word he was just like making up on the spot or just this new uh bit of British slang but apparently you can uh fe- you can trace it back to uh you know an Arctic the first Arctic monkeys yeah. album I thought Mar I thought Marty Bum was the name of a guy oh yeah Marty uh, yeah because Marty it means like uh you are like whining or yeah. you know sort of yeah like moaning yes. so yeah that's that i did not know i didn't know that either <laughs> I, I didn't remember that arctic monkey song yeah yeah classic cla- cla- classic um but you know the fact is uh when 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 maddie was going off about like uh noel's high flying birds i think i've got that name right yes it just it, it i mean this this makes me think that noel like firmly believes that th- High Flying Birds is as good as Oasis, which also perhaps means that if you were to go back to make like, you know, having Oasis reunion shows, they might focus on the newer stuff or what have you. No. Like, you know, the big, the big closing song is like the Hindu time. No, no, they wouldn't do that. They, they, they know ah. they wouldn't, I mean, they wouldn't focus. You know better on, than me. They wouldn't focus on that. I think, cause again, like in my scenario, it's a definitely maybe 30th anniversary reunion. So I think they'd play a lot of that record. You know, they would play a lot of the second record B sides. Uh, like when you see, cause I've seen them both solo and they play the hits in between, in in between like their new, I did not know that. Like they'll, whatever new album they're promoting, they'll, they'll play, but it's sort of like new song, 
Slide Away, new song, Wonderwall, new song, you know, it's like that. So I, yeah, they're not going to be pulling that. If they get back together, it's not to play the Hindu times, you know. It's it's they're definitely going to play the Hindu times. It's the place (laughs) I've never even heard that song. It's a good song. It's actually a good song. But like they're gonna they're gonna play Slide Away in Wembley Stadium, and it's gonna be amazing. Okay, so that is what they're gonna do. I don't know if you read the British press, like they're they're covering this very closely. Like like the I haven't seen much. I wouldn't expect any less. I haven't seen much writing about it here. You know, like when I was putting together. My column, I was like, I wonder, has anyone noticed these tweets? I haven't really seen Rolling Stone or Pitchfork or Stereogum or Spin, whoever. No one's really covering this. But like in England, obviously, they're they're like, like there was a tweet that Liam Gallagher had last weekend because he had hip surgery because he's because he's fifty years old, and he said the comeback is real. In one of his tweets, uh, and like all of these British newspapers put the comeback is real in the headline, you know, implying that this applies to Oasis and not just Liam Gallagher walking around. Like that's what that tweet <laughs> is really about. So yeah, we'll see. That guy, that's a guy who really needs to be nimble on stage on comeback, you know, like the legendarily animated live act Oasis. Uh, well, he, he's got the walk though. He's got that uh. cool Liam Gallagher walk. So... It does come in handy. Um, can I can I can I bring up the one thing that like struck me about your article more than anything? What's that? Is that apparently Noel's wife doesn't like Oasis, <laughs> or Noel's ex wife doesn't like Oasis? Yeah, according to Liam, <laughs> Liam said that. Which uh, again, uh, oh okay, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But yeah, it is funny if that's true. That like yeah. you, that you would marry the man who makes music you don't like. I mean that that that's a pretty amazing thing to me. Yeah, just like you would think that yo, know, I'm in fucking Oasis would be the leverage to win like any sort of power struggle in the home and just have that be diffused by like yeah, your like last twenty years of music was shit. Uh, I I I I don't know what that must be like. You know, I know what it's like. You know, when when my wife gets the uh, oh my god, you're gonna tweet about that face, but like to be. Yeah, your billion, your 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 beloved band by billions. Yeah, that does not mean shit to me. I mean, God, that's got to that's just got to be devastating. Yeah, it's tough being the spouse of a prolific poster, you know, because I I, <laughs> I have a similar experience. You know, you're out in public, and all of a sudden, you're on your phone posting, and the spouse is yeah. just like, why, why? It's like because yeah. I've got a posting rep <laughs> to maintain here. <laughs> yeah, you know, you don't understand. Like this is how I put food on the table. I've got a post. Yeah, you cannot deny the muse when it comes to you. You know what I mean? Like who who am I to deny the 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 muse of posting when I see this sign that I could easily flip into like a joke about like Wu Tang or whatever? If there's one thing we don't do on IndieCast is we don't deny the muse, whether it's inspiration or the band. No. Either way, we welcome them in. So man, we are way over the meat limit here are we though yeah we are this is like top this is like tapas man like you just got like we're 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 bringing like substantial appetizers people are getting you know people are getting nourished yeah they are i i think we got to cut the mailbag though we're gonna carry over our mailbag question to next week i also i wanted to do a quick sports cast with you i don't know if we have time for that if we should get to yola tango because we have the super bowl coming up I think Yola Tango would want us to talk about sports. Let's, let's do a quick sports cast here, and then we'll get back to IndyCast. <laughs> I have to bring this up, and I feel like this is going to anger some of our listeners, and I, I apologize for this in advance. Uh, but I have to talk about you know Eagles versus Chiefs and what's happening to Philadelphia right now as a sports city because I feel like I have – mixed feelings about Philadelphia right now. Like I love the city itself. Like I've been there, really enjoyed it. I really want to get back. It's a really cool town, but as a sports town, like you're kind of on the verge of becoming Boston. I just have Mm. to say this, the go birds thing this week, you know, it started out. It's kind of cute. I enjoy the enthusiasm of Eagles fans. I'm a little tired of it now. Eagles fans. I'm sorry. It's a little much. It's different because when was the last time you were in the Super Bowl? Like five years ago? 
Yeah, it was the uh, 2017, like it was the 2018 Super Bowl following the 2017 season. Second Super Bowl in five years. You were just in the World Series. The Sixers are really good. It's different when you're like the underdog compared to New York and Boston. But like Philly now is like kind of the best sports city. And I'm just saying, I say this with love because I love (laughs) Philadelphia. You guys are getting a little much. It's getting a little much. And if you win the Super Bowl... You might be the new Boston, i.e. The, mm. the, the the sports city that everyone else hates. <laughs> you know, and and I say this too. I've always had like a like I'm saying this as a Packer fan. So like my feelings about the Eagles are all are they're already mixed because of fourth and twenty six, like the worst yes. sports moment. First of, down, Freddie, Fred X, baby. The worst sports moment of my life. <laughs> um. So I already have like some anti-Eagles energy because of that, but I don't know. How do you feel about this? Am I off base? Not not at all. Like, I'm just like, I'm like kind of breathing, like knowing like, yeah, you're probably kind of right. Now, let me just be like abundantly clear that as we're recording, like this is the night, this is the day after the Sixers, despite the Celtics, like losing all their best players, still lost to the Celtics. So the Celtics completely owning the Sixers. Uh, the you know the Phillies won a World Series in like 2008, and that's like the only one they've won in like the past uh, gosh since 19. So as long as I've been born, you were just in um, the World Series though. Yes, they were just in and lost. Um, similarly, the Sixers always get drummed out like in the second round. The Flyers have been bad as long as I could possibly remember. So the thing about like. Eagles fan, like Eagles, perhaps, like, yeah, I could see that being kind of annoying. Like, it is the most central uh, team to the city's identity. That That's true. And uh, I look, I don't see us becoming like Patriots level because, you know, I don't, I'm going to like go on a limb here and say that like Philadelphia sports fandom isn't as, um, <laughs> it, you know, isn't as like predicated on this like vague sense of like, white pride as Boston sports fandom is. Uh, and similarly, if you're like, you're neutral about who's choose to root for in the Super Bowl, you know, only one of these teams has like a racist chant and the Eagles isn't one of them. <laughs> oh man, um, that's true. Look, they're still doing the fucking Tomahawk chop or whatever it's called. But yeah, I mean, I think with the Eagles, like, yeah, it, again, this is almost like the Steely Dan argument because like on on a face level, like this isn't like those joyless ass Patriots teams where it's like, you know, Tom Brady winning five Super Bowls, but still like being presenting himself as like an underdog and these like super annoying, like gritty gamer white wide receivers or whatever. Or it's like, or you're rooting for like Bill Belichick. Nah, the, the, the Eagles are swaggy. They're like top to bottom, a great team. They got fun players like Jalen Hurts is charismatic as fuck. But well, how do you how do you feel about your coach? Like Sirianni seems like like a buffoon to me. He, he just seems like a dude. I, I don't have strong opinions about him. Like I like Andy Reid. I've always liked that guy. Yeah, because he has like a lot of strong opinions about cheeseburgers. But I think that the Eagles. It's like you can say the you know, and both these teams are fun as fuck. Like none of these teams are like doing a believable. No one believed in us narrative. But you know, with the Eagles, like I think you can. It like Steely Dan or like any band like we talk about on the internet, you could say that the actual on the field product is like really fun and easy to root for, but the fans kind of make it annoying. Um, I don't like, I think Philadelphia in and of a whole, like the other teams are just too noticeably unsuccessful on a big level to ever become like Boston or New York. But Well, okay, but um, you're saying... We have to get to Yola Tango, but I, I, I have to I have to check you on the historically unsuccessful your baseball team was just in the World Series and I know you lost. And lost. Okay, but like yeah, but like how hard is it to get to a World Series? I mean that are we gonna say they're unsuccessful because they didn't win the World Series against the like a, a historically great team? I mean, come on. Like and they're gonna be in the running next year. I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's a possibility. If you win the Super Bowl, that the rest of the country might start hating your city. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I think it. I think that was. I. I, I think that's like kind of always been the case. We'll see. We'll but, see what happens. Yeah. We'll see what happens. But you know, good luck to the Eagles. Good luck to the Chiefs. We got to get to the meat. We. This is like the latest meat that we've delivered, maybe in the history of IndyCast. 
and it's a shame because we're talking about an historically great indie rock band in this episode, and it's Yola Tango. They have a new album that's out today. It's called This Stupid World, and I'm going to make a bold and brave proclamation. This is a really good indie rock record. This album from Yola Tango, <laughs> a band that we... A regular Steve Albini over here. Yeah, it's uh, the, yet another very good Yola Tango album. Um, and I'll say, you know, if this is a band that you've heard of and you haven't really listened to, this is a record that I think actually would be a very good introduction to what they do. Because with Yola Tango, historically, you have this combination of like really good and understated song craft on one hand. And then on the other hand, this sort of like improvisational, vibey, ambient, atmospheric side, you know, that uh, has like a lot of elements of like almost like free jazz or like, you know, jam band type music. And you get both of those elements on this record. And I think it's a really good balance. I mean, I think some of their more recent records, I'm thinking of like, there's a riot going on, which came out in 2018 was more on that sort of, again, improvisational side, not as song oriented. Um, this, I think kind of brings back the song oriented elements that you get from classic Yola Tango records in the nineties, like painful. And, uh, I can hear the heart beating as one. And, it just really shows that this band, they've really, I think, mastered what they've done in a way that doesn't feel tired. And I'm curious to get your take on this record and also the band's overall legacy. Because I feel like this is a band that you would be inclined not to like. Just because <laughs> there's something about them that is so consistent and everyone likes it. There's no Deftones element to what they do. Like, <laughs> no. is this band too music critic e for you, or do you even enjoy Yola Tango? Well, for for our listener who like might not be totally well versed in, uh, you know how music critic e this band is. I mean, I think that uh, I, Steve's absolutely right in that they are like if you like if you consider yourself like an indie rock fan, like not like in the sense of like the history of indie rock, not like Spotify, all, all new indie type indie. I don't think there's any possible way that you can't like Yola Tango. Um, you know, not just because, you know, they represent such a large swath of its history and, you know, it's emergence from like post, uh, you know, like post uh, Velvet Underground and Galaxy 500 or whatever. But like, for one thing, you know, the band, like the two main songwriters are like married, like seemingly happily married. Uh, they were like also music critics, right? Uh, I, I know I Ira, think Ira Kaplan was a music writer. He was. I'm not sure about Georgia, but I know he was a music writer before the band. Okay. So they got that, you know, they make like Simpsons jokes. They, they're clearly into sports. Um, you know, they make like very highbrow, but also like pop culture references, um, you know, they, they put out records like very consistently and they're always very good and they're never, they've never, like it took them like five albums or so to get going. So they never were like overly hyped, nor were they like the band at any given time. Like, so you like put that all together and it's like impossible to dislike them, which kind of reflexively makes me like kind of want to find a way to do so <laughs> just, you know, just being contrarian and all that. But like, you know, I can't even front, like I like this band a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I like this band. I don't like love them to a degree that I think that um, maybe people older than myself do, um, you know, like the first album that got me into them was oddly enough. Um, and then nothing turned itself and nothing turned itself inside out. That is a, burn off like Winamp or like get from scour.com and like, you know, burn to a CD classic of 2000 along with Kid A. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of an anomaly, right? Not, that, I, that album. Well, I, well yeah, I was going to say, like, why do you think it's odd that that got, because I feel like that's one of their cornerstone albums. Like that album, I can hear the mm -hmm. heart beating is one, which comes out in 1997 and then painful, which is 93. Yeah. I think that those, like that's the big three. Of Yola Tango. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, like, um, you know, just kind of given my tastes in general, like, nothing turned itself inside out is like the 
one notorious for like having only one rock song, Cherry Chapstick, which kind of fucking rules. But um, I would I would say that like, um, you know, a lot of like what makes Yola Tango click is this idea of like them being these like endlessly curious musicians and uh, you know, uh, and I, I think I can hear the heart beating is one is like the, like, if you got to choose one, that's the one, but that one never really resonated with me. I feel like it's stylistic range. It se- strikes me as being kind of like dated in a way in, in the same way that like Beck's albums feel a bit dated, but, um, yeah, I, I, I generally like the slower, more shoegazy, like slow core Yola Tango. Like I like on painful the first big day coming as opposed to like the loud one um but with this new record i mean uh hot take yola tango done it again um and i think it does so in a way that feels a little bit more urgent than the albums that had come out since let's say you know since nothing turned itself inside out like every you know every time they put out a record whether it was like you know i'm not afraid of you i can beat your ass or popular songs or the one from 13 or 18 like they're always like good and they're beloved and um don't seem to make as much of an impact you know as say you know their imperial phase but um you know they make me think like um i think maybe this one seems to have a bit more juice behind it and i'm curious why you might think that is well i again I, i'll go back to what i said before where i think that it melds the two sides of what they do in a way that a lot of their recent records haven't like there's a riot going on was their trump era record and instead of making a sort of outwardly angry record it was very interior and mm-hmm. that's what a lot of their records have been like lately they're more abstract and more leaning into like the spacey side of what they do. You know, you mentioned like albums like Popular Songs, which from the title you could tell is more of like maybe like a song oriented record. And uh, you know, you, you said you mentioned I can hear the heart beating as one earlier as being like having the stylistic range, and that's why that record is popular. And I, I love that record too. And I think that this album, this new album, feels a bit like that record in that it just showcases all these different aspects of what this band can do. The difference with The Stupid World is that it's it's a shorter record. I think it's only that about, is true. It's only about yeah. 45 minutes and there's like nine songs, which again is why I think that if you're new to this band, this actually would be a good introduction because it shows the range of what this band is capable of, but it's a pretty bite-sized package. Uh, it really flows well, even though, though there are songs on this record that go you know, the six, seven minutes. Yeah. There are some noisier songs that are, again, leaning into the abstract side of what the band does, but there are also like a lot of really tuneful songs. Like one of my favorite songs on the record is Fallout, which yeah. sounds like a classic, painful style song. You know, it just shows that they're still capable of doing that. One thing I think is interesting with this band is the broader conversation that you can have about whether it's better to have a career where everything is consistent and everything is strong and worthy or a career where there's big highs and low lows and it's not as consistent, but like you're going to hit a home run sometimes and the other times you're going to strike out. Because I think like with nineties bands, like the, like the nineties indie rock bands that would be peers of Yola Tango, you know, you can look at a band like Pavement, for instance, who I think does have higher peaks than Yola Tango, but they have much, you know, fewer albums. You know, they they don't have like as long of a career. They don't have the breadth of Yola Tango. Uh, I think you say the same thing about Built to Spill. And Built to Spill's been around actually. I mean, they put out a record last year, and I think that their highs are probably higher than Yola Tango's, but you know, their lows I think are lower. Like, they they've made records that are pretty forgettable over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm curious, like, what's your take on that? Because I have to say that I, I, I tend to prefer artists that have highs and lows. Because I just think failures are interesting. You know, like, my favorite artist of all time is Bob Dylan. And he has lots of valleys in his career. And sometimes the valleys are more fun to revisit than the peaks. But uh, with Yoa Tango, if you're going to assess them in terms of their consistency, like, they're probably the best 90s indie band. 
But if you mm. if you apply the other standard, they're not. You know, like because they because they have great albums, but like I don't think they have the peaks of some of their peers. If that makes sense. Yeah, for like a band that you know named themselves after you know a baseball term like Elio Chacon um, on the Mets back in the day, I think it's fair to bring in a baseball comparison. Like I, I think of them in the night in terms of like '90s indie rock bands being like kind of like Hank Aaron. Like you know Hank Aaron obviously famously uh, was the home run leader, uh, but like you look at him from. I, I did look this up from 1955 to 1973, like for 18 straight years, he never hit more than 47 home runs and never less than 27. And he was like always healthy. But, you know, you think of Hank Aaron as like the most prolific home run hitter, but I can't think of any real like transcendent season that he had, you know, whereas you look at the people around him like A-Rod or Ken Griffey or, you know, Mark McGuire or what have you. And it's like, yeah, there were some years where like they, you know, were complete dog shit. But uh, there were also like those memories of like seeing them in their prime. And, you know, even like, I guess you would call like imperial phase, um, you know, Yola Tenga. Now, look, I, I like and nothing turned itself inside out more than any Sonic Youth or any Pavement album or any Flaming Lips album for that matter. But I get where you're coming from in that, you know, they were never that band at that time. And, you know, I think that... We don't have to like really choose between like whether it's you know better to have like a career with like you know wild peaks and valleys or like consistency. Like we can have both. Like uh, you know, well, of course we be... can have both. But yeah. I'm just saying, like, do you like, just in your own mind with artists oh. that you like? Do you like it? Like because I think with Yola Tango, they aren't mm-hmm. like when like, when we talk about like the best indie bands, they're always in the conversation, but they're never the first yeah. band. You know, no, not at all. Like Pavement is usually the first band that people talk about. Even though you can look at Yola Tango and be like, they have like three times as many albums as Pavement, and which means that they have probably three times as many good, good to great albums as Pavement. Right. But we look at Pavement as being the quintessential band because they just signify something about that decade in a way this mm. band doesn't, and it, it does seem like because I mean the other band that you can bring up in this conversation is Spoon. You know, because people right. always talk about Spoon in a similar way that, you know, Spoon was never like the number one band, but they're always like the fourth or fifth band, you know, and they're obviously great. But it is interesting how the the less consistent bands tend to be more attractive to people. It seems to be like that is what draws you in sometimes more than the one who's just reliably delivering all the time. And it is sort of an interesting thing, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just, I think what would, if I, if I had to choose between like another, you know, four star 8.1 type Yola Tango album in like 2025 or like a complete dog shit bomb (laughs) Yola Tango record, I would take the latter, you know, just to spice things up a bit. Like I would love to see, I'm told that like Summer Sun is kind of like the, the dud Yola Tango album. I think it's like kind of pleasant. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to just hear like what a bad Yola Tango song or album would be like, just so I have like something to base it on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, or if they, but they just seem incapable of, of doing that. And I think that there's just something about the way they make music where it feels like they're a real band, you know, absolutely. Where it's not just like one person who's obviously in control and then you have a supporting cast. I mean, I, I don't get the feeling that Ira Kaplan is like <laughs> the dictator of that band. And like, you know, the other two are just supporting him. I mean, they, they really feel like a real unit. Um, yeah. I mean, again, I think that this is a band where obviously their nineties material, I think is the place to start. If you want to revisit, this catalog or if you want to investigate it i think the 90s in particular like that run of albums is really strong we should mention that they actually predate the 90s i mean they they started putting out records in the 80s so but i don't really think of them as like an 80s indie band they didn't really no you know painful was like their sixth album and that was like the first one that like people really rallied around right yeah i mean there were a few records like like fake book came out in, in 90 i feel like that is like their first really strong record. And then in the nineties, it's just from one strength to the other. I think since then still consistent, maybe a little spottier. Uh, 
but you know, you mentioned like, I'm not afraid of you and I will beat your ass. Like that, I think is a quite strong record. I think that came out in Mm. 06. Yeah. I I gotta say, I I feel like the new album, uh, the stupid world is probably my favorite since that album. Uh, I am afraid of you. Cause again, that's another instance of them working in that. I can hear the heart beating as one mode where you've got a lot of different kinds of songs, but again, the stupid world is like a shorter record than I am uh, afraid of you. Like that's another sprawling, you know, sort of throwing everything against the wall type album. Uh, so I, I so anyway, yeah, I, I I'd say check out the '90s albums in particular. Painful. Uh, I can hear the heart beating as one, and everything turn itself out. Those three. I am not afraid of you. Get that in there as well, and then the new record. I think that's a good five album starter kit for getting into this band. Do you think the younger people, like, you know, people who are, like, in their 20s, like, right now are, like, listening to Yola Tango? Like, I'm, I'm very, like, obviously this is an exciting development for, like, people our age. But I'm, I'm wondering, like, if they have, like, any sort of, like, penetration into, like, the younger indie cast, or the, uh, the younger indie cast listening market. You know, there's something about this band that is just timelessly indie rock, where yeah. if if that's a sound that you're interested in, that you can go back to that band and they don't sound as 90s as like a lot of their contemporaries. You know, I think the only reason why people might not do that is that they don't have the celebrity, again, of like Pavement, Sonic Youth, even like Built to Spill. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like they're like a little less well-known than those groups. Uh, but again... If you haven't listened to this band, there's a big discography to explore. And as we keep saying, it's very consistent. There's like a lot of really good albums. So hopefully this record will be a skeleton key for that that catalog. And and you know, I I'm happy for you because you're about to enjoy a lot of great music. Now, I reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so this week over at Uprox, uh, we published an interview that I did with Mike and Nate Kinsella, uh, their new project uh, called Lies. Now, the Kinsella name, obviously, it rings bells around here because, um, you know, those two most recently were collaborating in American football. Nate is a recent addition to the band playing vibraphone, glockenspiel, all sorts of instruments. And this out, they've been releasing a couple songs uh, at a time since, gosh, I want to say like last year. And uh, this Wednesday, they announced the release of their self-titled new album. Um, These songs evolved from what was supposed to be American football LP4, um, which was going to be a pretty significant departure from the two reunion albums. A lot more synthy, a lot more samples. Um, you know, as it turns out, being you know four guys in their forties trying to make an album on Zoom, not particularly easy to do. So they reduce it to a duo, and now it is, um, you know, half of this album is already out. <laughs> it's like twelve songs; six have already been released. And you know, if you like heard American Football and thought like, man, I'd love to hear Mike's voice over some booming synth pop, uh, this is for you. Frankly, this is. Uh, exactly the kind of thing I wanted to hear from, you know, Mike and Nate Kinsella right now. Um, you know, I'm, you know, Owen, American football, very consistent bands. You know what you're going to get. But um, this one takes things and it, it just reminds me of that time I saw American football open for churches in this one-off in L.A. Um, so if that concept, like, really resonates with you, I think uh, this new album will as well. It comes out late in March, but once again, Half of it's already out there. So, um, yeah, and read the interview as well. Love talking to those guys. So the album I want to talk about is called Norm, and it's by a Canadian singer-songwriter named Andy Schaff. And I've talked about him, I think, on this show before. I I actually interviewed him a couple years ago when he put out a record called The Neon Skyline, which is a really uh, great record. Uh, And Andy is known as this... uh, literary songwriter like the kind of guy who you listen to his his records and he's going to tell you a story not just in one song but often over the course of an entire record and he's really become one of the leading uh 
practitioners of that style of songwriting. So if you're into the classic singer-songwriters, Randy Newman, Paul Simon, people like that, this guy is carrying on that tradition, I think, in a very strong way. Another thing that's interesting about Andy Schaaf is that he records his own records. And if you've listened to him, he's really great at like capturing the warmth of drum sounds, guitar sounds, bass sounds that you love from like those classic 60s and 70s records. Like oftentimes when you hear music that's trying to replicate that, it has a sort of plastic quality, you know, like where mm. it, it just sounds like someone opened a kit and <laughs> all these Austin Powers type affectations came out. That's not true on his albums. They really feel organic and they have a very welcoming vibe to them that sucks you into the lyrics and really allows you to appreciate again, this, this is just the storytelling that's going on. So this record, again, it's another winner from him. Uh, it's called Norm. And again, if you haven't listened to Andy Schaff and his last name is spelled S H A U F. If you're going to search for him on streaming platforms, again, his, his records really hang together in a way that, uh, is unique and uh he's a real songwriting talent so definitely check out that album yeah magician the magician that one from 2016 big fan of that one yes and uh yeah lots of good records in his background uh thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week and if you're looking for more music recommendations sign up for the indie mixtape newsletter you can go to uprocks.com backslash indie and i recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box 